Well, good morning, church family. If you would take out your Bibles, please, or turn them on, swipe to them, whatever you do to get to God's Word. Uh, We're in Philippians this morning, still in chapter 1. And uh, the title of our message this morning is A Gospel for All Times. A Gospel for All Times. So let's pray, and uh, as always, ask uh, for the Lord's help. Lord, I've just been reflecting on the line in that hymn that we just sang. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Uh, And Lord, that is the way we ought to feel. That's the way I, I truly want to feel, which is to be hungry for and to long for your return, to wish that there would be no more waiting, to see you return in power and glory and splendor and to... Um, establish your kingdom fully, that we might see your full rule and reign and the shalom uh, of God reestablished in this world. Uh, So Lord, we really do long for that. We want that. And yet we also know that you have placed us here for a time. And we're not here simply to circle the drain or just go through another calendar or another route set of routine uh, days and experiences that you've left us here to be your witnesses, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to represent the glorious gospel of our God to a world that needs it desperately and is dying without it. So Lord, may we long for home, but may we live well here now because for the time being, it is our home. I pray that you would teach us much from your word that it would not simply be in our heads or in our minds, but that it would saturate to our hearts and out of our fingers and feet into our very lives. So animate us, teach us. Lord, we want to hear from you now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I missed a a gospel opportunity here a couple weeks ago. I'm going to tell you my story if you don't mind. Um, like you're going to protest. No, I don't want to hear it. Just move on, please. Yeah. <laughs> Our oldest son, Aiden, has been home uh, for college for the summer. Actually, this is his last Sunday. He heads back uh, to Biola tomorrow for his junior year, so we're uh, obviously not excited about that. But um, while he was home, he decided to use um, his Alaska Performance Scholarship to take a couple of business classes up at UAF. Um, and so after going through um, sort of the admissions process and registration and all of that kinds of stuff, he got in, he was taking the courses, and about halfway through, he was informed that his performance scholarship was never applied to his bill, and therefore, he owed the school $3,000 for the courses. Uh, it was very clearly and obviously an error on the school's part, um, Aiden had all of their commitments, you know, documented in, in a bunch of emails, about 13 different emails. And, um, and so, you know, that was all there. But to make matters worse, what they were saying was, uh, there's nothing we can do. All 100% of the funds have already been dispersed. That account is now empty. There's no more money. The window has closed and so on and so forth. And uh, so he, I got the exasperated phone call, right, letting me know about this injustice. And I want to tell you that I, I got angry. And I, I, I'm saying that with a smile on my face because I'm looking back laughing at me, but it wasn't real laughable. I got hot. And it's one of those times, you know what you love by what you get angry about, right? 
I got angry. I kind of boiled up, and I assured him. I was like, hey, don't worry about it. You don't owe them the money. Forward me the emails. Okay. And then I asked for the, the contact number for the office. So I got the emails, uh, and the office got the phone call from an angry dad, right? And initially from them, I got all the canned responses as well. I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do, sir. The window of time has closed. The monies have been dispersed, so on and so forth. Uh, this is our policy, blah, blah, blah. And again, I just, I boiled up. And I didn't yell, I didn't scream, I didn't say anything inappropriate, but I was direct, I was sharp, I was assertive, and I was pretty warm. And this is the problem with being a regular speaker or preacher, you know, you can find your words, you know, I've got lots of words, and I found most of them, <laughs> and uh, said what I felt. It went something like this, listen, you're not going to get a penny from him, he doesn't owe you anything, you made a mistake. You made a commitment to him. It's all in writing. Uh, this is something you guys are going to have to deal with. I want you to know we've lived here for 20 years. I've got two other kids at home who are thinking about college and how you guys handle this situation. Well, let me know if you're a school they ought to be looking at. So I want you to know that you guys messed this up and you're going to make it right. It went about like that. Um, at a couple points in the conversation, I had to sort of take myself in hand and say, listen, I'm angry, and I know I'm not angry at you, and you yourself didn't make the mistake, but you're the one I have to interact with, so I'm going to tell you. So this woman eventually um, on the other line said, well, Mr. Johns, I tell you what, why don't you forward me all of the uh, emails that your son has corresponded with us on? And I was like, all right, I'll be happy to. All 13 of them. Here we go. And then it hit me. When I send this email that's been forwarded to me, it's going to have my email address on it. This woman is about to get an email from Alaska pastor at something.com. <laughs> I, I was immediately ashamed and embarrassed, and I thought, uh-oh. I even thought, how can I scrub my email off of this? And I even took steps towards this. I forwarded it to another family address, hoping that, you know, maybe that would bury it or something like It's still there, you know. And I thought, well, here we go. So quite a Christian witness was I, right? Somewhere, this woman is at a barbecue this summer, and somebody is asking the question, what's, what's the most difficult person you've had to deal with, say, today or this week or whatever? And she's answering, Funny you should ask. Uh, I got this angry, you know, Christian dad at lostmycool.com, you know. <laughs> Apparently, he's a pastor right down the road at a church. I should have told her that I worked for Journey Christian Church or something. <laughs> uh, I know sometimes pastors don't finish their stories, and if I don't tell you, you're all going to come up to me afterwards, so I'll tell you how this worked out. She got the 13 emails, and and within 30 minutes wrote back and said, we made a huge error, we found some internal monies, it's all settled. And, and I said, thank you, and to their credit, thank you. Um, except that Christian dad at angry.com over here is the villain in the stories that she's telling to her friends, right? So that's where that sits. 
And the reason um, I bring that up is because I missed an opportunity. And the Apostle Paul would have us see these moments as opportunities not to yell at someone, not to exercise our anger or our righteous indignation that we're all eager to get to, right? But from the central point of our passage today in verse 27, it says this, that whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So this doesn't mean that we try to earn the gospel or try to look like we were deserving of it all the time. But rather, our everyday lives should demonstrate that we are those who have been shaped by the gospel of God's incredible grace that has had a formative impact upon us. That it's not just something that we believe in our head and therefore have crossed the line of faith and stayed right there, but that God, by his grace, continues to move us on in our journey, again, shaped by the gospel. We don't just believe it, we've been shaped by it. And as Paul is talking about this, the example that he uses from his life is not this little incident down at financial aid. Paul's in prison for the gospel. And it's from that place, that situation, that he gives us this message, Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so here is our point. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. I think the Apostle Paul kind of lays out four spheres here, and I just want to work through those one at a time. And the first sphere where I think he kind of addresses this is in the idea of in our earthly struggles. In our earthly struggles. As in with my introductory story, it is that moment of adversity It's that moment of earthly struggle or loss or injury or injustice. That's an occasion where we can have the show the gospel's formative impact in our life, where it can be the most visible. Uh, You've heard the old expression the darker the backdrop, the more brilliant the light. When those things happen, it's an occasion for the brilliant light of the gospel. And it's really interesting, too. uh, If you look at the church throughout history, the Christian faith has always been at its best, not when it's a state-sponsored religion, but when it was pressed up against the headwinds of adversity. Those are the times when the real Christians show up and the nominal Christians get shaken out. And that's when you see the true church being the true church. Um, Back in 2015, a study came out Uh, done by the Pew Research Forum. And it looked at uh, the Christian faith, either its rise or decline over a period of time, from 2007 to 2014. And it reported that in just those seven years, there was an 8% decline in those claiming to be Christians in the world, or in the U.S. And when that study came out, people everywhere went crazy. Christianity is done as we know it. It's over, it's going off the map, it's blah, blah, blah. And they kind of wrote the 
epitaph for Christianity. And then others, I would say, uh, more intelligent and insightful people, incis- insightful people looked at that study and actually showed it demonstrated something else. So folks like Ed Stetzer and Brett McCracken and Russell Moore looked at it and saw, based on what you tested for, what we're seeing is not the decline of Christianity, but the decline of nominal de- Christianity. Those who are Christians in name only. And the reason for that is, at least what they asserted, was because, quite frankly, in the United States right now, it has become more costly to be a Christian uh, than, than just the opposite. And so if you're not really a Christian, but you've just been claiming it like, well, I'm an American, so clearly I'm a Christian. I went to church a couple weeks ago, so clearly I'm a Christian. If that was the standing that you had, you're not claiming it anymore. And that group is now called the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, no religious affiliation. And that's a group that is rising. But I would just say, it's not so much that it's changing, it's just that people are really declaring where they've always been. And I think that's predominantly what's happening here. Uh, But what we find are that those who were once upon a time claiming to be Christian because it was acceptable or easy, now that they're not, the scriptures actually tell us that God was going to do that. He was going to prune the organism of the church. Jesus says this in John 15, I am the vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Christianity of conviction is quite strong right now. But Christianity, nominal Christianity, that's DOA. When it's costly to be a Christian, we find out who really is one. And the disposition of Paul really puts this on display. He takes his circumstances, I'm in prison, and he actually says, I'm not your prisoner. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I mean, how can you touch that? Uh, later on, I love it where he says, to live as Christ, to die is gain. What are you going to do to that guy? Can't lose, Right? How wonderful would it be if we had that mindset when the obstacle came to us, the conflict, the challenge, the disappointment, the adversity, the persecution? Uh, Friends, I'll tell you, I think these things are going to heat up, not just because I'm great at reading culture, but because the Bible says things will get worse before they get better. So let's get good at being good Christians in bad times, okay? That's what I would have to say. Let's see those times, whether it's a wrinkle at the financial aid office or a full frontal assault to our faith and recognize this is a gospel opportunity. Soren Kierkegaard once said that uh, Christianity thrives when it's a sign of contradiction. A sign of contradiction. In other words, when Christianity simply accommodates to the culture or mirrors the culture, then it's not worth sacrificing for at all. And that's something that the mainline church is finding out right now as they're continually faltering. But when Christianity believes something that is countercultural and holds to it, then it stands out as a stark contradiction and actually, therefore, something that is more beautiful. Let me put this in a positive light, give you, give you a positive example of this. There's a woman in our church right now who's battling cancer. And she's receiving chemotherapy and radiation regularly. And she and her husband are regularly inviting her caregivers to come to our church. And they're showing up. 
And I think that is a brilliant witness in a dark time. And that is something that stands out as a contrast, as a contradiction, and therefore is compelling. That is living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Right? Not trying to prove that one's worth it, not trying to earn it, but it shows that the gospel has had a shaping and formative influence on this person. So Paul's change produced an opportunity for him to show the shaping influence of the gospel. And what happened, right? Two things. Number one, the palace guard all come to faith in Christ. And the Christians who are hurting for him because he's in jail become afraid. They become more confident in their proclamation. Hey, we got a guy in jail. Let's go. (laughs) They ramp up. So in our earthly struggles, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, uh, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me, uh, stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So the second sphere, not just our earthly struggles, but the second sphere is in our interpersonal rivalries, that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and even in our interpersonal rivalries. Now, nobody in the room, nobody here, I can say this confidently, nobody in the room is an apostle. And if you think you are one, you're not. I'll just tell you that. You're not an apostle, okay? Um, There's not too many of us that are full-time pastors in the room, but every person in the room is a full-time missionary. You are a missionary where God has placed you. You are to be his ambassadors. You are to be his witnesses. And whatever sphere of influence God has given to you. So whether that's your classroom or your office, the cockpit of your jet, not sure how it would work there, but that's something we could talk about. Your workbench, your neighborhood, for some of you, in and among your own family. You're a missionary where God has placed you. And as we try to use the spiritual gifts that God has given to us, and as we try to be a witness for Christ and for the gospel, we will inevitably run into people who claim to believe and promote the same gospel, but whose methods and motives are suspect. Have you run into this yet? All you have to do is turn on the big hair channel on the cable, right? And you can go, I'm not sure about all these people. Do you get what I'm talking about, the Big Hair Channel? Do you guys know that one? Okay. We will see people. We will see their ministry at times go, I don't know about that. And sometimes they have a way of just getting our hackles up. We can feel jealous or threatened or annoyed. And, and uh, let me give you a couple everyday examples. Maybe this will fit you a little better. Maybe you've witnessed to a friend for years. You've been sharing the gospel with them and they come to faith, and you can't wait to bring them to your church, and they end up going to someone else's church across town. Or you've invested some time in someone, and uh, you're, you're really, you really love them, you care for them, you've passed on books, you've had conversations and discussions and debates, and you find them just drifting to a different tribe of, of Christianity than you sort of fit in. Or maybe you've been leading a small group for years, and it's just okay. It's kind of limping along. It's not great. It's not bad. It's just, you know, it's all right. And, and you, 
People down the block just started a few weeks ago, and it's thriving. Look at all the people parked out in the street down there. What's wrong with our group? And you can kind of get these jealousy things going. I'm sure I am not the only one that gets these kinds of things going. And Paul kind of backs us off of this level of irritation and this instinct to worry. He basically says, whether from false motives or true, if Christ is preached, rejoice. It's not even just tolerate it. He says, if it's a true gospel, rejoice. And this is very freeing, because I don't know about you, but I can turn into the ministry police at times, you know. You want to hand out citations. Sorry, your theology is a little anemic here. Citation, right? Too bad you're using an inferior translation. That's going to cost you. (laughs) Your exegesis, a little bit shoddy there. Ticket. You lifted that quote from Tozer. I know it. You didn't cite him. I know Tozer. Don't do that. (laughs) Or you're inflating your numbers of whatever because it's all about your ego. And we, we want to hand out these citations, right? Right? Flag on the play. Sorry. And Paul gives us kind of a gift here. And I, I'm going to call it this. We'll see if this sticks. He gives us the permission to practice the Christian shrug. No big deal. Even more than that, he says, don't just shrug it off as the personal burn, but he actually says, celebrate the advance of the gospel. In other words, if a true gospel is being preached, rejoice. False gospel, that's a problem. But if the truth is being taught and you don't like the methods or the motivation, it's not your job to cite it. Shrug it off. Jesus taught something similar when he said this. He says that wisdom is proved right in all of its children. In other words, these things have a way of working themselves out. So this is the way that I think Paul sort of bursts the bubble of what I'll call Christian tribalism, church camps, factious Christianity. Shrug it out. It's a true gospel, rejoice. It's a true gospel with mixed motives, no big deal. And I think one of the, some of the questions we can ask ourselves in this is, you know, am I after the promotion of the gospel or am I after my own vain glory here? Am I promoting Christianity or am I just promoting my own personal network? Am I really hoping for growth in the kingdom of God or am I just trying to expand my tribe? What's important here? That the gospel is preached. I'll say it this way. The true gospel in the hands of faulty people is still powerful in the hand of Almighty God. So, In every way, no matter what happens, we live in a manner worthy of the gospel in our earthly struggles, in our interpersonal rivalries. And this third sphere, I'll say this, in our embodied life. Uh, Second half of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for me but it is more necessary for you that i remain in the body 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for the progress and joy of the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So in our embodied life, and I want to tell you, I'm going to, this is sort of a minor point that Paul's making here, but I'm going to make it a major point because I think it's something that we need to hear, particularly in our cultural moment, and that is this theology of the body, okay? Paul, we get this wonderful picture of Paul's state of mind. He is so confident in Christ's saving work and so devoted to Christ and to his glory and his affections for Christ are so strong that he's like, I'm ready to go. Amy and I say this at time and those, you know, times at home on those particularly tough days, ministry days or just life days, and we look at each other. Why doesn't he just end it? If God's got this all wrapped up and there's a glorious kingdom, let's go. Bring it on, right? Let's just get there. Let's cut to the last chapter. And, and, and Paul sort of has this mentality, and I think there's something right about that. There should be a gravitational pull in our hearts as well to the glory that God is going to put on this earth one day. We should long to be with him. I remember as a kid, and probably some of you can relate to this, you remember thinking, well, there's some things I'd like to do first. I want to learn to ski. I'd like to get a motorcycle. Might want to get married. We'll see about that one. You know, you go through your list of things you think you want to do before the Lord returns. And then it's like, okay, if I get those done, then he can come back, you know. No, our hearts should be anytime, Lord, please, no longer tarry, right? Please return. But out of our love for Christ and our love for what he loves, we should feel this incredible tension here to be his ambassadors, to be his witnesses, to snatch people as from the flames so that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their own savior. And, and our longing for the Lord should make it difficult to stay, but our love for the Lord should make us be committed to what's here. And I want to just say this. So Paul gives us a little bit of a theology of the body here. Three different times in this section, he mentions the word body. And, and I want to just let you know that this is an incredible richness that Christian theology gives to us that is largely missing in the world right now. The Bible teaches that we are embodied souls. That there is a material part of us and an immaterial part of us, and they are an integrated whole. We are not just one or the other. And this is really good news, and this is really freeing in a world that's been confused about the body for a very long time. Uh, if you go back to the first and second century, we find the philosophy of Gnosticism, right? It believed that the body, that all material things were inherently evil and tainted with sin. Therefore, we've got to get out of the body as quickly as possible. It also led to the heresy of believing Jesus couldn't have been human and physical because otherwise he would have been tainted. So they had this false idea uh, of ma the material world and called it evil. God doesn't do that. When he made the physical world at each point of creation, what does he say at the end of it? It's good. This is good. And the body is the same. So we go back to the first, second century, we can see Gnosticism, eunuchs, self-flagellation, and asceticism, those who hated the body. We can see on the other side, those who said, just give it what it wants, right? Just listen to the body. Do whatever your body wants. You're, it's just the vehicle you're driving, so that would be an aspect of hedonism, gluttony, sexual immorality, homosexual practice, fornication, unrestrained bodily desires. Just give in. Just do what it wants. 
And so you can see from just being a body or hating the body, the world has been long confused about this. But God gives us in his word wonderful good news. We are material and immaterial. Both are good. Both are integrated in our bodily life. We are embodied souls. So it looks like this. The Bible teaches that we are engendered. Not not haphazardly a gender, not gender fluid. God gave us and assigned to us a gender, male and female. And he also said, this is good. The Bible teaches that we're situated beings. In Acts 17, it says that he determined for them the places and the exact times that they would live. Which means, and you may need to tell yourself this in the middle of a Fairbanks winter, God meant me to be here now. God did. It's not my husband's fault. It's not our family's fault. God means me to be here now. Even in Proverbs, we find this this great proverb. It says, better a neighbor nearby than a brother far off. God has placed you. You have a situated life, bodily life here and now. The Bible also teaches that the length of our life, it's not really up to us nearly as much as we think. This is what I tell my wife when I have a second piece of cheesecake, right? (laughs) Every day was ordained for me before one of them came to be. The Bible teaches that we're gifted with spiritual gifts to use in this life for the sake of others, for those that God loves. So our life is a bodily life. Our discipleship is a bodily discipleship. Our marriage, our singleness, how we feel about ourselves and our attractions, these, are all, these all exist in bodily submission to the Lord who assigned us this place in life and this gender that we have. Our death will be a bodily death. Our resurrection, a bodily resurrection. Our ascension, when the Lord raises us up and we spend eternity with him, will be bodily forever. We're not going to be wispy spirits. We're going to have an embodied state. Christ, right now, who is resurrected and glorified, lives in a body. It is a good thing, and our world doesn't know what to do with the body, and we have an embarrassment of riches in the scriptures with this intermingling of material and immaterial, our bodily life. It's not simply incidental to Christian life. I'll I'll move on here. I'll keep going. Verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, you will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So I think this fourth sphere of living in a manner worthy of the gospel is in our community, our Christian community, or in unity uh, with one another. I have probably preached on this topic maybe more so than any other topic in the scriptures, and that's because it seems to appear on virtually every page of the Bible in the New Testament, the unity of the body of Christ. And I think the reason why is because there is no more conspicuous witness to the reality of the gospel, but that it bring people together in a unified way. It shows that we are not isolated individuals, but that we belong to one another. We are members 
of one another, members of something bigger than just ourselves. And the text here does something interesting. You notice when it talks about spirit, uh, spirit uh, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. You notice that that word is capitalized. It's not saying that you stand firm in just kind of one way of being or one manner of being or one kind of personality. This is talking about the spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity. The same Holy Spirit of God that is in you is in me. And that is incredible to me. And that ought to create in us an absolute unity. So let me kind of bring this to a close here. In each of these spheres that Paul lays out, our earthly struggles, our interpersonal rivalries, our bodily life, our Christian community, Paul argues that it is the gospel that orients us. The gospel is not just the way into the faith, it's the way of faith. It continues to orient and to shape our lives, and we will come back to it again and again. So in our earthly struggles, we see these as opportunities for gospel witness, opportunity for that contradiction. Interpersonal rivalries, I don't have to be the ministry police. If a true gospel is being preached, praise God. Uh, It organizes and orients and integrates my daily life, my bodily life. This is something I've been a little bit convicted in as I get older. I'm 46 now. There's things I don't like about my body anymore. And there's things I can't do as much as I used to do. You're looking at one of the things I don't love about my body right now. And I find that I complain a lot. And what a foolish thing to say. Why don't I say, God, thank you for giving me a body. Thank you for this instrument that I get to use in this life. And then this final aspect, the gospel moves us to Christian unity. We've been rescued by the same God, brought into the same family, and dwelt by the same spirit of God. So the gospel is not just a story about sin. The gospel is about the reclaiming, redeeming, and reordering, and rewebbing of all of life. And that really is good news. So let me come back to my original story. And let me put it to you like this. What if? What if I had? What if when I got on the phone, and I was pretty angry, and I got on the phone with this woman about this scholarship thing, what if, I, what if I hadn't come off as angry? What if instead I had come off as exceptionally patient, still advocating for the right thing, still being specific and direct about what we needed to do, but patient? What if when this woman got the chain of emails, all 13 of them, and she could see how egregious the mistake was in contrast, in contradiction to how patient the caller was? What if that woman saw that contradiction and came to me and said, can I ask you, how was it that you were so composed and calm and patient and understanding through this when we made such a big mistake? And what if I had had the opportunity to say, do you know what? I am still a broken person, but God has been gracious to me. I'm a Christian and I'm learning to live like Jesus with God's help. Or what about this? What if after, after having totally lost my cool, what if I had kept my appointment? And on Friday, I went down to her office with a penitent coffee <laughs> and set it on her desk and said, hi, I'm Eric, I'm a Christian, and I blew it. I lost my cool with you on the phone, and I want to apologize to you. 
you have a difficult job. You're here fielding the phone calls while others might make the mistakes. I want to apologize to you. And how about this? What if I had said, will you forgive me? How would that have hit her? So friends, I just want to say, let us not miss our gospel opportunities. The gospel is not just the way into the faith, it's the way of faith. And whatever happens, we can conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, you haven't left us behind on accident. You gave us these bodies. You put us in this place. You bring us these opportunities, these challenges, these hardships. You set us up again and again and again to be your gospel witnesses in this dark world. Lord, may we rise to the occasion. May in every sphere and everything, may we live in a manner worthy of the gospel for your glory and for the salvation of those who don't yet know you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.